This message was recorded at Fillmore Baptist Church in Princeton, Louisiana. Our goal is to faithfully preach the Word of God for the salvation of sinners, the strengthening of believers, and the glory of God. Please visit our website at www.fillmorebaptist.org and listen for more information at the conclusion of this message. Uh, Matthew 11, and we'll read, we'll read the first six verses. So Matthew 11, 1 through 6. When you find it, would you stand? <clears throat> now it came to pass, when Jesus finished commanding his twelve disciples, that he departed from there to teach and to preach in their cities. And when John had heard in prison about the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples and said to him, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? Jesus answered and said to them, Go and tell John the things which you hear and see. The blind see and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus this morning. Again, thanking you, Lord. Thank you for gathering us here. Thank you for giving us the freedom, Lord, to do what we're doing here. Thank you for giving us the privilege being able to come together and have your Word before us in written form and being able to freely proclaim it and hear it. Lord, you've blessed us Tremendously in these things. We ask, Father, that You grant understanding. Make Your Word effective today in our hearts. Open our minds to the truth contained here. May we receive it for what it is, Your own revelation of Yourself. And Lord, may we be willing to put aside preconceived notions that don't line up with Your Word, misconceptions that don't prove true when compared to Your Word. May our hearts, may our hearts be bound to You, in love with You for who You truly are. May you be glorified through it all, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> Verse 1 of chapter 11. Um, now it came to pass when Jesus finished commanding His twelve disciples that He departed from there to teach and to preach in their cities. And it's been suggested that that verse um, goes better with the last chapter than with this chapter, and I think I would agree with with that. But the uh, you know the chapter divisions are not inspired; <laughs> it's it's the words that are inspired. Uh, but I do think it's helpful, though, in in one sense, because it helps us make the transition. Um, what what Jesus has done here is commission his disciples to go out. And preach the gospel. And so now, 
Um, we're told in verse 1, when he had finished doing that, that is, when he had completed his instructions, uh, instructing the twelve, he himself departed from there to teach and preach. So, so once again, we, um, we come up against the, the thrust of Jesus' ministry. I mean, this is what it's about. He's, he's going out teaching and preaching the good news of the kingdom, making known the truth of God's revelation uh, in, in Himself, in His kingdom, making known the fact that He has come, Messiah has come. Now, this is what He did. He taught and preached. Now, I think the word there uh, refers not to the twelve, which it almost sounds like it would when you read the verse, um, but refers to uh, the children of Israel. The lost, or you can go back to chapter 10, verse 6. He, he sends the disciples out to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. That's where he sent them specifically. And now he himself goes to their cities. That is, the cities of the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Spurgeon had an interesting quote on this that I wanted to mention uh, regarding that. And I thought it was encouraging for us uh, in our efforts to evangelize. He says, we are to do our best for men and then hope that the Lord will design to certify and confirm our teaching by His own coming to men's hearts. In a spiritual sense, we go first and take possession of the souls entrusted to us. And then the King Himself comes, comes in and takes His own at our hands. And then Spurgeon prays, Lord, give me many souls which may be Thine in the day of Thine appearing. To this end, I would gladly go at Thy bidding and preach Thy Word, trusting that I may hear the sound of my Master's feet behind me. Uh, and that is uh, interesting, isn't it? Jesus sends the twelve out and then He goes behind them uh, into, the, into the cities of Israel. Let's pray that it works, as, as Spurgeon says, that it works the same with us. We go out, we carry the Gospel message, the message of the Kingdom, and pray that God comes behind us. In fact, we can pray that God goes, Christ goes before us and with us and behind us, <laughs> confirming, confirming the truth of His Word, bringing souls to Himself. So that puts us in the context here. Jesus has just finished instructing the twelve, and now He is approached by disciples of John, John the Baptist. And this is, this is where we're going today. This is uh, what we're going to um, look at today. We, we were already told earlier on in, in, uh, in Matthew's Gospel that John had been imprisoned, and now he is sending... Uh, Disciples from, from prison, obviously, he's, he's got a certain amount of freedom. He's able to, to uh, talk and with uh, people and send messengers, and he sends them to Christ with a question. So that's where we're going to start this morning. The question of John the Baptist in verse 2. When John had heard in prison about the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples, or some manuscripts just say through. He sent through his disciples. That is because he himself being in prison could not come. 
So he sends delegates. He sends through his disciples and said to him, that is said to Jesus, Are you the coming one? Or do we look for another? Now, there's the question. There's the question of, of John the Baptist. Are, to Jesus, are you the coming one or do we look for another? Now, this is really an astounding question for any reader who's been paying attention um, in the Gospels. It was John the Baptist who was the forerunner of Christ. He, he came announcing the coming of Christ. In fact... This is a, uh, a use of his own language uh, back in chapter 3. That, that little phrase, the coming one, in chapter 3, verse 11, he's, John the Baptist himself said, I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he who is coming after me, that is, the one coming after me, the coming one after me, is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So, in chapter 3, verse 11, John clearly testifies by implication that Jesus of Nazareth is the coming One. The coming One will come after Me. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And then when Jesus comes to the Jordan to be baptized, John points Him out by the instruction of God and says... Behold the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. The main um, role of John the Baptist was to point or to people to Christ. That is, announce the arrival of the Messiah. So it's interesting here that he, he seems to express doubt. Now, some of the some of the commentators don't think the doubt belongs to John. They say, obviously, John knew who Jesus was. He's only sending here for the sake of his disciples and others who need to hear it plainly stated. Now, but there's nothing in the text, really, that tells us that. And I, I think that... that um, Maybe stretching it a bit, trying to cover for John, <laughs> and I and believe me, um, I don't want to uh, in any way uh, disrespect John the Baptist here, who Jesus said uh, was was the greatest among Old Testament saints. But we do want to deal truthfully with what's going on here, right? And there appears to me, and we'll talk about this more as we go, some doubt. In the, in the mind of John the Baptist as to whether or not Jesus is indeed the Christ. And that's what I want to discuss this morning. Now, let's, let's go back just for a moment again to verse 2. What would, what would cause this kind of, of doubt in the mind of a believer, specifically John the Baptist? Well, I think there's a, a, a telling uh, fact here, a key phrase Verse 2, when John the Baptist had heard in prison about the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples. Now, John is hearing reports about 
what Jesus is doing. And by the way, Matthew here uh, literally says, the Christ, the works of the Christ. Verse 2, when John had heard in prison about the works of the Christ, there may be doubt in John the Baptist's mind at this point. There may have been. Certainly there was doubt in the minds of others. Um, Matthew and his, his account is, is making it clear that there's no doubt in his mind. He is the Christ. The Christ. Matthew says when John the Baptist heard about the works of the Christ, he sent to him. Uh, we know a little bit about where John the Baptist was in prison because of the writings of Josephus. And it's interesting to me, I don't have the uh, quote in front of me, I just thought about it when I was talking about that, but when, when uh, Josephus talks about Jesus, he calls Him the Christ. And Josephus was a Jewish historian, he was not a Christian. <laughs> as far as we know, he was never converted. Uh, but, but he did give a pretty accurate account of things that were going on in the first century. He was alive during uh, that period, at least during the uh, latter part of the century. And even he referred to, interestingly, Jesus as the Christ. Well, Matthew's, uh, Matthew's statement here is not an empty profession. We already, we already know. We've, we've read about his calling. Uh, he starts out uh, the book, as a matter of fact, in uh, chapter 1 by, by stating clearly the book of genealogy of Jesus, the Christ, the Son of David, the Son of Abraham. Stating clearly he believes Jesus is the Christ, and he reiterates that here. Now, what would, what would bring about possibly this doubt in the mind of John the Baptist who had pointed Jesus out to Israel, who had identified Him? Well, again, I think, I think probably a key element is the fact that He's in prison. And that's the phrase I was referring to. When John had heard in prison, he hears about the works of Christ in prison. In other words, He's, he's not in the most desirable of circumstances. And John the Baptist has given his life to his calling. He knows, he knows what the Messiah is about. I mean, he knows the Old Testament prophecies concerning the Messiah, uh, some of which Jesus is going to make reference to in his, in his response. He has an idea about what it's going to be like when the, when the coming one arrives, and it seems that things aren't playing out exactly the way that he thought they would. In fact, when Jesus himself announced uh, his, his own coming in Luke 4.18, in his own hometown synagogue, he used Isaiah 61.1, and there he says he's come to set the captives free. And yet, John is in prison. And it's 
sad to say, but our circumstances a lot of times have a, have a uh, profound bearing on our faith. And John was, after all, a man. Knowing the Messianic prophecies, he's probably looking for immediate deliverance for the nation of Israel. A sort of utopia to be set up. He's looking for um, judgment on the enemies of God. And Jesus is going about doing good things, as Jesus says in His response, and as John has already heard. And yet, there's no, there's no judgment. doesn't appear to be. It's true that people are being healed. It's true that the words of God are being expounded. Blind eyes being opened. Demons cast out. But at the same time, John is taken captive by a wicked king and imprisoned and awaiting death. He's sitting on death row at this point. And he will ultimately be decapitated. So doubts, I, I think it's reasonable to, to suggest that he, he's somewhat in doubt. Not that he's, not that he's apostatized. He, he hasn't forsaken Christ. In fact, uh, I think as far as, as, as application to ourselves, there, there, there's, there's a lesson for us here and at the same time uh, some encouragement. Try to say it this way: the, the, the ability of people, human beings, to process thoughts that are apparently contradictory. Let me, or, or, or we say it like this: the dualness of our thoughts is an interesting phenomenon. John's not the only example of this. Think about Thomas, another follower of Christ, who refused to believe the reports of Jesus' resurrection. It wasn't because he didn't believe in Jesus. But he had trouble with those facts until he saw for himself. And, uh, and there's even encouragement in that because he got what I think we, we, we could basically refer to as a soft rebuke from the Lord. He, he was rebuked, but he wasn't cast off. Jesus was ready to grant his request. You know, Thomas was saying, I won't believe until I see. But it was a rebuke nonetheless. Jesus said, essentially, okay, you've seen, but blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. So, Thomas had that same struggle, believe yet in some sense, unbelief. Unbelief. Or what about the man in Mark 9 who comes to the Lord seeking healing for his demon-possessed son? And he openly and honestly confesses to Jesus, I believe. Help my unbelief. Now, if you or I had been standing there, we, we might have said, boy, is this guy confused. 
But again, there's encouragement in Jesus' response. He doesn't condone unbelief, but at the same time, He doesn't tell the man, you know, you're beyond hope. You're confused. Get away from me. You don't have any faith. And He heals the man's child. What about the disciples in the midst of the sea? Here, the reason that they're there in the boat is because they believe Jesus to be the Messiah. Now, they don't understand all of the implications of that, but they believe Him to be the Messiah. And so the, the, the storm hits, and they go and they wake Jesus up, and they say, Don't you know we're perishing? Have you ever thought about what a ridiculous statement that is? Perishing, perishing, as if because Jesus were asleep, you know, Satan slipped something in to take the disciples out while Jesus was sleeping. No, He's the sovereign Lord. He he knows exactly where they are, and He's in control of them, and He's in control of the circumstances. He's not worried about them perishing, and they should not have been worried about perishing. But there's, there's that dualness again. They, they believed in Christ, yet they struggled with unbelief. And, and Jesus said that. He, he, he rebuked them for that. Where's your faith? But there again, take encouragement from it because He doesn't throw them over the side of the boat or anything. You know, it's like, well, you don't believe anyway. Uh, you just get out there and fight for yourself and see if you survive. No, He calms the storm and He calms them. And He gives them a better revelation of who He is. That is, that is a, a, a clearer picture of who He is. He was Not that He was hiding it, but now they, he, he demonstrates by commanding the wind and the waves to stop. He demonstrates His sovereignty. So they believe, but in one sense, they don't believe. I think that's the case with John the Baptist. So I don't want to be too hard on John the Baptist because I think all of us struggle with this from time to time. Just yesterday I had my eyes checked and, and this, this always uh, is, is a little bit of sounding to me too or confounding maybe would be a better word. But, you know, they come back and they say, and I, I know, you know, I, I know when I have trouble seeing something, right? You know when you have trouble seeing things. I, I'm aware of changes. Uh, for example... Uh, I've always had perfect vision, so years ago I could I could be driving at night and everything is clear as a bell. If I saw uh, tail lights ahead of me, it's a crisp, clear picture. And I started noticing years ago that those types of things, those were the first things to start getting fuzzy, right? And you notice those things, you know they're there, but you have a uh, an ophthalmologist or an optometrist check your eyes and they come back and tell you like they did again yesterday. Uh, concerning distant vision, you have 20-20 vision. Well, uh, I'm not an ophthalmologist. I'm not an optometrist. Um, I always thought that 20-20 vision meant perfect. <laughs> perfect. perfect. So I, I don't know exactly what it means. I've, I've come to find out that it doesn't exactly mean perfect. Uh, I don't know exactly what it does mean, but they say as far as distance, um, you have 20-20 vision. But then they go on to say, you know, we're going to give you some glasses to help you out there. Um, 
because you've got astigmatism and because, uh, you know, uh, things are blurry to you. I mean, they, when I told them that, they didn't argue with that. They said, well, that's, that's because of age or whatever. But you've got 20-20 vision as far as distance is concerned. So you see, but you don't see perfectly. And things are not quite in focus. But you're not blind. Now, you do see. You do see the oncoming cars. You do see the trees and the road and the white lines. And you do see the characters on the page. But without help, it's, it's just not all clear. It's just not all in focus. You know, there's, there's a story of, of one of Jesus' healings that took place like that. He healed a blind man. And the blind man, after Jesus touched him, said, I see trees as men walking. I don't know if he was looking at the trees or the men, but whatever it was, you know, he, he, he wasn't seeing clearly. And so Jesus touched him again, and then he could see all things clearly. Well, he saw the first time, but he, he wasn't seeing clearly. Everything wasn't in focus. And, and there again, you can take encouragement from that. Because when he says, when he states that, you know, I, I, I see men look like trees. Jesus doesn't say, "Well, best I can do, best I can do for you. I'm done with you." Touches him again and clears things up. In fact, that that whole miracle to me seems to uh, suggest. There's a process involved sometimes, spiritually speaking. Now, most of his miracles were instantaneous, but that one seems to seems to have that uh, that that implication. Spiritually, there's a process, and you can see and yet not see plainly. But God is patient. So what what he does? Yes, he rebukes. Where's your faith? Like he did with the disciples. And then he gives more revelation. Which, the result of that is, he he helps us focus more on him. He brings himself into better focus. So, John seems to be struggling with doubt here. He's not an unbeliever. I'm not suggesting he's lost or anything like that. He's a believer. He knows Jesus is the Messiah, and yet he looks at circumstances and he's not quite sure. This, this, I had different expectations. This is not the way I imagined it. When Messiah comes, I didn't expect to go to prison. When Messiah comes, I expected greater freedom, more comfort. Now, a couple things to consider here. One I've already touched on, so I'll do this one briefly. But bad circumstances, misunderstood, can produce doubt. Bad circumstances, misunderstood, can produce doubt. Now, the reason I say it that way is this. Um, These things are truly bad circumstances. In other words, being in prison is not a good thing. (laughs) 
<laughs> that's, that's not probably not something we ought to uh, uh, long for and, and, and go try to, you know, go try to make it happen. But if it's God's will, even the bad circumstances have a good purpose behind them. A good purpose as, as the end, as the goal. But misunderstood, the bad circumstances misunderstood can be responsible for doubt or a reason for doubt in our own, in our own minds. John is a believer now in prison, in unexpected circumstances. Another thing, is, is his question an honest inquiry or is it, uh, is it evil doubt? And I know that's, that's kind of a weird question because you might be thinking, well, it almost sounds like you're, you're suggesting that some doubt is, is good. And I, and I want to be careful there. I don't, I don't think doubting the Lord, doubting who He is, I don't think that's ever a good thing in and of itself. It's kind of like being in prison. It's not a good thing in and of itself. But we do know, don't we? John the Baptist bore testimony to Christ. Later, Paul is in prison. Others are in prison for the glory of God. Being in prison in and of itself is not a good thing. And yet, God works good things out of it. So, in Paul's case, for example, a lot of the guards wind up being saved. Not just in Philippi, but other places too. God uses it in the end, to bring glory to His name. It, it is not a good thing, but He's going to bring good out of it. Well, in a, in a strange way, like I say, it may sound strange, but that's also true sometimes concerning our own doubt. Again, the disciples, in the midst of the storm, they doubt. But the result is Jesus gives a greater Revelation. Jesus gives a, a, a clearer revelation of who He is. And I want to come back to that in a moment and tell you why I think that is. But I think in John's case, this is honest inquiry. Because of his circumstances, he's having some doubt. He's not... He's not um, it's not, it's not an evil, evil motivated thing here. It's, he's just unsure. Now, what about Jesus' answer? Verse 4. And again, the question is, are you the coming one or do we look for another? Jesus answered and said to them in verse 4, Go and tell John the things which you hear and see. Now that's interesting because John was already getting reports. Verse 2. He's already getting reports about the works of Christ. And, and, and what Jesus seems to be saying is that's enough. What, what you hear and see concerning me provides your, your answer. And, and then Jesus in verse 5 says, The blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf. 
The dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. Now, first of all, John may have had wrong expectations. Certainly the Pharisees and other Jews had wrong expectations about the Messiah. You and I may have wrong expectations. That's something to think about too. You know, um, when you were saved, what did you expect? And, and looking back now, are you satisfied or dissatisfied with Jesus? Our expectations may be wrong, but Jesus is fulfilling what God sent Him to do. That's built into His answer here. Let me, let me give you a, uh, a couple of references because Jesus is using language from the Old Testament, um, particularly Isaiah. Uh, for example, Isaiah 29, 18 and 19. In that day the deaf shall hear the words of the book. The eyes of the blind shall see out of obscurity and out of darkness. The humble also shall increase their joy in the Lord, and the poor among men shall rejoice in the Holy One of Israel. Isaiah 35, verse 5. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Then the lame shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the dumb sing. For waters shall burst forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. In Isaiah 61, 1, which I alluded to earlier, this is what Jesus quotes in Luke 4.18. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. What Jesus says here is being done. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and opening of the prison to those who are bound. And Jesus in His hometown synagogue reads that passage and says to them, This day, this Scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And that's what He's saying in His response to John the Baptist. I'm, I'm doing what the Messiah is supposed to do. Blind eyes are being opened. Lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. The, gospel have the, uh, the poor rather have the Gospel preached to them. I'm doing... What Messiah is supposed supposed to do? It may not meet my expectations or your expectations, but he's doing the will of God. So he's fulfilling the messianic prophecies. And secondly, uh, in his response, um, just just from his response. Christianity, God's redemptive plan is is bigger than you and me. We tend to live a self-centered, me-centric life. What I'm suggesting is this. John the Baptist looks at He's heard the reports, but, but it seems he's primarily looking at his own circumstances. 
Now, if he's not guilty of this, I guarantee you I am. Okay, so, so you, you can apply it to me. But I, but I think this is what he's doing as well. The reports are coming in about the works of, Matthew says, the works of the Christ. And it's what Jesus testifies Himself, what Isaiah testified of. The blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the dead are raised, the poor have the good news of the kingdom preached to them. All of these things are happening just like they're supposed to happen. But John is saying, but I'm in prison. <laughs> good for them, but I'm in prison. And he's trying to interpret the times and the events through his own circumstances. As if it's all about me. I thought, I thought you were the Messiah, Lord. And I, expected, I expected better than this. I didn't expect to go to prison. I didn't expect to have trouble. I didn't expect to have problems on the job. I didn't expect to have family problems to deal with. I didn't expect to have financial troubles. I didn't expect to be ridiculed, ostracized. Are you the one, the coming one, or do we look for another? This is not my picture. This is not my understanding of the Messianic age. And the Lord says, this thing's bigger than you. My plan is working out. The good news of the kingdom is being preached to those who need to hear it. There are people being healed and set free even raised from the dead, there are people regaining their hearing. And there are people being persecuted. There are people going to prison. There are people suffering. But it's the kingdom that God is advancing here and not... One life. It's not about making one person more comfortable, more happy in this world. Now, again, I don't want to be too hard on John the Baptist. I'm just, I'm just speaking out of my own experience here, okay? <laughs> when, I, when I look at situations and I think, Lord, this, I didn't think it was going to be this way. I, I expected trouble from the world, but I didn't expect trouble from brothers and sisters in Christ. If I, if I work hard, I don't expect to have trouble on the job. If I have the love of Christ in me, I don't expect trouble from family members. And Jesus is saying, look, look beyond yourself. Look beyond yourself and, and look at what I'm doing. Look at what the Christ is doing. And then lastly, as part of His answer here, verse 6, 
Blessed is he who is not offended because of me. Now, this is one of the reasons. And, and, and by the way, this to me is one of those somewhat shocking statements. I mean, Jesus is um, always honest. And as I've said many times, he always he shoots for the heart. Doesn't, he doesn't beat around the bush. Now, this is one of the reasons, this statement is one of the reasons I think that John is having genuine doubt here. Again, not that, he's, not that he doesn't love the Lord, not that he's forsaken the Lord or apostatized, anything like that, but just, he's just having trouble reconciling circumstances with uh, what, what he expects, with his own expectations concerning the Messianic age and the coming of the kingdom. And Jesus says, blessed, and we've talked a lot about that word, especially when we were in the Beatitudes. It means happy or approved, prosperous, favored. I mentioned it a moment ago, talking about Thomas. Thomas wanted to see. Jesus said, okay, you've seen. But blessed is he who has not seen and still believes. Suggesting that that person is more blessed than Thomas. Blessed is the man, or is he, who is not offended because of me. Now, the the word offended there, uh, scandalizo, is is where we get our word scandal or scandalize. And the idea is to make one stumble and fall. Um, So, for example, Jesus says, if, if you offend one of these little children who believes in me, that is, you, you, you scandalize them you, concerning the truth, concerning the gospel. You put a stumbling block in front of them that makes them fall. Jesus says it's better for you to have a millstone tied about your neck and be thrown into the sea than for you to do that. That's how serious that is. It's that same word here, the same idea. Falling, stumbling, falling. Paul said... To the Jews, Christ is a stumbling block. That is, they, they stumble and fall over Him. Because again, they have wrong expectations. And when He came proclaiming the truth, the truth that should have been a, a foundation rock for them became a stumbling stone for them. Jesus says, blessed is the man who is not offended because of me. That is, he doesn't, he doesn't stumble to the point of falling at me. In other words, this Jesus, the true Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible, the, the true Messiah, doesn't meet the expectations of some. And so they stumble at Him when they hear the truth. Let me give you one example of that, again, from Scripture in John chapter 6. It's a, it's a long exchange, so I'm not going to read through all of it, uh, just, a, just a portion of it. In John 6, Jesus is talking to the Jews, and they stumble at the truth. That uh, 
that he proclaims here concerning himself. John 6.51 I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. The Jews therefore quarreled among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Then Jesus said to them, uh, and, and at this point, by the way, you might expect him to say, Calm down, calm down. <laughs> it's metaphors, okay? You know, it's, it's, it's types, analogy. You might expect him to say something like that. You know, just calm down, take a deep breath, and let me explain. But he actually takes it further. Verse 53, Most assuredly I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats My flesh and drinks My blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For My flesh is food indeed, and My blood is drink indeed. He who eats My flesh and drinks My blood abides in Me, and I in him." Look at verse 50, 59. These things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this said, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can understand it? And they left. Verse 66. From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. They stumbled. They were offended. They were scandalized. Jesus says, Blessed is he who is not offended because of me. That is, when they hear the truth, they embrace it. When they, when they look at the biblical Jesus and say, This is not what I expected, but this is great. Jesus says, that response is blessed. When they look at the biblical Jesus and say, this is not what I imagined, but it's better than I could have ever imagined. And no, it's not all about me. It's about Him, but He's worthy. This is not, this is not the idea that I had of a Christian life, but I know that God is in control. I know that He loves me. And I know that what He says and what He says about Himself is true and trustworthy. Jesus says, Blessed is that man. Now, let me say one final thing I said I would come back to a little while ago. Because I think if we were honest, we would say we all deal with doubts from time to time. Every time I hear this phrase, and, and speaking of offense, don't don't be offended if you use this. I'm not trying to, uh, you know, I'm not trying to set my own laws here. But I'm, I'm just just being honest here, just telling you. Every time I hear this phrase, I know that I know that I know that I know. Immediately, what I think is that person's not sure. And they may not be a follower of Kenneth Copeland or Kenneth Hagen or one of those guys, but but they're trying to implement the same principle. If I can say it enough and hard enough, I'll convince myself. 
I know that I know that I know. Now, having said that, I could be wrong, and there may be people out there that, that really that really don't struggle <coughs> with unbelief, but I doubt it. I doubt it because of what I see here. Even in the most godly people, I mean here in the, in the Scripture and in church history. But let me close with this. Here's what I think is key. Here's what I think separates. In other words, you say, well, th- this is a problem because if... If we have doubts, well, the world has doubts. So we're kind of lining up with the world at that point. Yes, yes, it's a problem. But here, here's what I think distinguishes someone who's truly saved from someone who's not. And, and uh, uh, I'm not suggesting this so that we can go around judging everybody, but so that we can judge ourselves. Where does John go with his problem? In other words, here, here John is in doubt about the identity of Jesus, and where does he go for the answer? He goes to Jesus. Not Peter Jennings, or Barbara Walters, or, you know, Time Magazine. He, he goes to God's own revelation, God's own Word, Word in the flesh, in, in, in this case, John's case. He goes to God's own revelation of Himself to clear things up. Remember the man who was seeking deliverance for his son? Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Help my unbelief. Why does... Jesus is the one he's having trouble believing in. Why does he ask him for help? Isn't that astounding? That's what I was talking about, about the, the dualness of our, of our thoughts. And don't you find as a Christian that when you have problems like this, when you have problems believing, that you are driven to your knees and driven to the feet of the Lord for the answers? I mean, why don't, why don't we go out and take a census? Now, I'm having trouble believing in the Lord, so what I need to do is take a survey. I need to take a poll and, and see if I can find out what the consensus here, and that will help sure me up. No, what we do as believers is go to the very one that we're having trouble with. That's amazing. And that's the Spirit of God at work in us. And we cry out to Him. Like David in Psalm 38 says, Your hand presseth me sore. Your anger is hot against me. And then he says, Help, Lord. Forsake me not, O Lord, O my God. Be not far from me. Make haste to help me. And that's what a believer does. What John the Baptist does. 
I, I need clarification about who you are, Jesus. So tell me. Tell me. Why? Why? Because he's, he's going to believe the Word that he gets from the Lord. I think, I think I'm right in saying that, that doubts, to some extent, because we're not glorified, we're not there yet, doubts are a common part of the Christian experience. The question is, what do we do with them? Do we take them before the Lord? Do we go to His Word for the answers? And I think true believers do. Blessed is he who is not offended because of me. John the Baptist wasn't stumbling over Christ. He was falling on Christ asking for help. Let's pray. Father, we thank You again for Your Word and for the encouragement we draw from it, from the truth of Your love for us and the blessing of having uh, Your own revelation given to us so that we might know You, so that we might trust You, so that the doubts don't increase, but so that uh, we have a way to deal with them and so that they fade and so that our trust in You grows. We thank You, Lord. We thank You for Your rebukes. We thank You for uh, rescuing us when, when we don't have faith to, to deserve it in any way. You calm the storms. You bring the deliverance. You sure us up, and it's all out of mercy. We love you, and we thank you, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This sermon is made available through the ministry of Fillmore Baptist Church in Princeton, Louisiana. Our desire is to faithfully proclaim the message of salvation, which God has provided in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ our Lord. For more resources and information, please visit our website at www.fillmorebaptist.org. You may use the links there to contact us or write us at Fillmore Baptist Church, 6304 Highway 80, Princeton, Louisiana, 71067.